Hello and welcome to the Sand on Sand podcast channel about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Rob Puricelli and in this episode I talk to programmer, producer and engineer JJ Yangzalik. As part of Trevor Horn's team of technological wizards in the 1980s, JJ emerged as the preeminent Fairlight programmer of the day, primarily as one-fifth of the art pop collective Art of Noise, but also in projects ranging from ABC and Dollar to Yes and Malcolm McLaren. Describing himself as not a keyboard player, JJ brought his programming skills and talent to bear on a wide range of successful and groundbreaking recordings that were at the vanguard of how cutting-edge technology shaped not just the sound of pop music, but how pop music itself was made. I wanted to find out how JJ stumbled into an industry at a time of huge innovation and how he ended up working on some of the most significant and important recordings of the day, many of which are still cited as influential by many current musicians and producers. friends who I knew had moved to London and they, f- they were chatting on the phone and they said, why don't you come down to London? So I moved down into their house in Highgate, right next to the Archway tube station. And they were big live music fans. And they used to go down to a pub. And I think it was down in Muswell Hill or somewhere called Stapleton Tavern. And there was a band there called Landscape. And that was really the first time they got into seeing a band on a regular basis and getting into the music and knowing what they were doing differently and listening and really, really getting into it. So I was uh, fairly unemployed at that time, I think. And we decided that it would be great if we could book them for our own little sort of venture at the um, community hall in Archway Road, which I think is still there. Anyway, we booked the place. And I sold all my tickets and basically nominally made a bit of profit. Um, meanwhile, going around, putting up posters, and we had a great gig. And I helped them load in, load out, and I thought, this is oh, quite enjoying this. So one thing led to another. And I started working for them on the road. And Richard James Burgess was the drummer. And I started pumping his gear around for him. And also Andy Pask, who now plays with Hans Zimmer. Um, and they were very, very busy session guys. And Richard said to me, doesn't matter what you do, JJ, but just always arrive early. That was his credo. And he'd be doing two or three sessions a day. And I had a van, one or two drum kits. He's setting one up, go around to the next studio, set up the B kit, go back to the other studio, shut down the A kit, go and move that. It was phenomenal. Anyway, found my way around all the this, all this jingle studios in London and then came across Jeff and Trevor when Richard was drumming for some of the tracks uh, Age of Plastic. And I think that, I'm not sure whether he drummed on video, killed the radio star, or whether that was someone else. It might have been Paul Robinson. Anyway, 
One thing led to another, and I took Richard's drum kit to Top of the Pops, and Jeff and Trevor had this guy who was looking after their gear nominally, and he drove off and left one of Jeff's keyboards, which I picked up and took with me and phoned him up and said, your guy left a keyboard behind, I've got it. And they phoned me up the next day and offered me a job. (laughs) So I obviously couldn't say no. And before I knew it, when they were sort of rehearsing, they ended up uh, in Redan Rehearsal Studios, somewhere in Bayswater, I think, terrible place, only because it was small and damp, with these guys from this band called Yes, and I wasn't into Yes. I didn't know who they were, really. They were jammed in this room. And next thing I know, Jeff's going, need to build a keyboard rig. We're doing an album. And so spent vast amounts of money building his huge keyboard rig, which must have had 12, 13 keyboards in it, I think, a massive analog pedal board that um, Pete Cornish built that was essentially guitar effects with a multi-core in and multi-core out into a mixing console, uh, custom-built monitors, custom amps, you know, big, big setup. And so I kind of got in charge of that, not knowing terribly much, and he bought a Fairlight. And so he and I used to go to all the promo stuff they did in the evenings because no one really knew what they were doing at all. Everybody was there and everybody was just milling about, scratching their heads going, great, it's fantastic. What the hell do you do with it? You know. And so that's how I kind of came across uh, Jeff and Trevor. So initially I was working for Jeff, then did the drama album, went on tour, toured America with Yes, and they came back. And I can't remember the timeline exactly, but Trevor Rabin came along. Jeff got into forming Asia. Trevor Rabin was playing guitar in Asia for a while. And how Wetton and uh, the double drum kit maestro, Carl Palmer. And whilst they were rehearsing, I was taking Jeff's Fairlight, which he wasn't using in rehearsals, by agreement, to go and earn a bit of money. So I was going out charging for his Fairlight, charging for my time. That was going along quite nicely until one day I was at Air Studios with uh, Macca and George Martin, and um, there was a torrential downpour, which we know about nowadays, but back then was quite unusual. And I think in Air Studios, which is at the top of the building at Oxford Circus, the glass void between the control room and, and the live room filled with water and everything got shut down. And I had a call saying, Jeff's rehearsal gear is getting rained on. You better go and sort it out. So I had to leave when I explained. Anyway, got back. And Macca very kindly said, sorry, JJ, you know, we need someone here all the time. And I went, okay, yeah, fair enough. Said, uh, you know, thanks for the gig. And that was that. So at that point, I realized that I had to sort of make a decision and I couldn't do both things. And I decided to go freelance and use Jeff's machine when he had it and others as and when I could. And then Gary, with whom I was shared a house at the time, Gary Langen, said, Trevor's thinking of buying a Sinclavier. We've got to put him off. He said, it'd be a disaster. I'll talk to him. You need to come and have a chat. So I got a call from Trevor and I went and had a chat. And he basically bought the Fairlight on the back of 
what I'd said to him. And he said, uh, here you are, take it away and uh, get into it. I'll call you, give you a couple of days notice and uh, get out there and do stuff. And so after that, I ended up in a house in Highgate, a little room with a Revox A77 quarter inch. And I was out recording absolutely everything I could. That was fairly hi-fi. Uh, but I was also using my recording Sony Walkman as well, which I actually preferred the sound of because it had, if you remember, stereo mics on it. And they had these monster auto compressors on them, which kind of just did the most amazing things. And you couldn't control at all. I mean, it was just madness. And got some really cool sounds on that and just filled the Fairlight with stuff. Looping back to Mecca, he had a sample of a trombone and this is the other pivotal moment apart from me being fired from the gig prior to that he uh recorded this uh, trombone he said let's sample it we put it in i looped it all up pretty horrible i can tell you and he starts playing with these big fat chords on it he said it doesn't sound much like a horn section does it jj and i was going well no it's not it's a trombone and to be honest it sounds like a bit of a hoover on acid and it was at that point i realized that uh, a i had no future working for macca and b sampling musical instruments was a dead end. Just suddenly that moment, I thought, this is the wrong way to go because there are lots of people out there who can play these things and play beautifully and everything, so I'm going to go and find stuff that interests me. So thereafter, everywhere I used to go, I was just recording, 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 and spent days and days and days in my little room editing and sampling and editing and sampling and editing and sampling. So um, we're, we're in the early 1980s, um, 82 um, was uh, ABC's Lexicon of Love, which you were involved with. And then following that, um, or around that time, came the Malcolm McLaren gig. Can I, can I just interrupt you there about, about ABC? This is a very significant album for many reasons. And one of them is that it was the first time really that Anne, Gary and I started to kind of work together. And it was one of those moments where... For example, Gary would magic up these delays and reverbs and compression and magical engineering stuff. And Anne would play a couple of things and suddenly this, as if it were magic happened. We'd done a little bit before with Dollar, Give Me Back My Heart and records like that. And uh, one of the, <laughs> it was fraught with problems because I'd be going out doing sessions, often using the same sounds. And they sound terrible. The engineer go, oh, the producer go, it doesn't sound like da 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 if they'd heard something. And I'm going, yeah, no, it's the same sound, but I don't understand. And it was basically what was playing played, who played it, and what the engineer was doing, what Gary was doing to it, which kind of brought it all to life. And it took me a while to figure that out. You know, he was doing delays with drums. He was using a lot of compression, made everything sound really loud. And it became very apparent that there are quite a lot of engineers who didn't really know how to bring the Fairlight to life. That was the sort of sound that Gary was able to manipulate and, and do things with that made it sort of magic. going on to the ABC thing was that was my first recorded keyboard performance as a player 
um, where we sampled Julian Mendelssohn, the engineer, going speak no evil. And I did the speak no, speak no, speak no evil. I just played it live and that was it. And I, the guy said, well, I recorded that. And I went, well, I'm not a keyboard. I said, it's fine. I'll just do this, fiddle with it. And that was it. It was done. Uh, but that's how it was in many respects. We kind of throw things around. And because he was always recording and always tweaking things and making them sound really interesting, everything came to life, really. So how do you remember the the Malcolm McLaren uh, phase? beginning uh, you know how did you get involved with that w- w- was it trevor that came to you and said i've just had this guy come up to me this this proposition of making this album or were you involved at you know an earlier stage how, how did that all come about gary and trevor and malcolm went off around the world they were in south africa they were in uh, the appalachians they were in new york recording all this stuff and they came back and i got called in Trevor said, these guys are doing this thing called scratching. And I went, oh, what's that? And he said, well, they're here. Come and watch. Uh, and there they had their decks, these two guys, two black guys from the Bronx, I think. They're extraordinary. Uh, the Supreme Teeth. I think they took a whole bag full of cash and were never seen again when the session's finished, basically. <laughs> that was it. But essentially, Gary recorded what they were doing, and we, we fired a lot of it into the Fairlight so we could manipulate it. Uh, and I would come and go and do the odd session and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And so there's little bits of the Fairlight on most of the album. And more often than not, Trevor would have created the backing track, got the overall shape, and Anne would, would be in there playing those wonderful drills and chords and beautifying everything. And then I'd get called in to crazy it all up. Let's see what JJ's got. Put things in, turn them sideways, chop things up put them upside down, and then they'd start spinning around in the echo, and everybody go, whoa, what's that? You know, and it took on a whole uh, new life. And so I was in and out of those sessions all the time, but not, not certainly not in the, in the kind of the backing track creation stage. What was Malcolm's uh, view of the Fairlight? Did he get involved in any of that? I mean, or was he more, um, you know, that kind of uh, Svengali type, you know, just ordering people around to do, you know, his bidding well, Malcolm was one of the reasons why the Art of Noise got together, I think, for me, because it was his attitude. And his attitude was, why not? Why can't you do that? Is it that Gary quotes him as saying, is you, is you can't do it or you won't do it? He'd say, can't we put the middle of that song in the middle of this Trevor and Trevor will go, well, we need to bring in another 24-track machine and sync them all together and he was always pushing and pushing and pushing because he wasn't really a bit like me, I guess, wasn't musically trained. And you go, well, why, why can't you do that? And I suppose in some ways that rubbed off. And I was going, well, why can't you do that? Why can't you put a sound of a bell in there? Why can't you put a car crash in there? Why not? Who says you can't? And had invested all this money. Trevor kind of went, oh, okay. All right. That sounds interesting. Meanwhile, Gary's putting things in reverb and flying around and Anne's playing his tunes and Trevor finds a home for it. So Malcolm's was really 
just bouncing around and going, oh, great. And, and, and to use the old expression, vibing everything up. He was very positive and enjoyed it and lots of positive energy and, and it was good fun. It was good fun. Did you learn anything from those sessions, you know, either from, you know, working with Trevor or Malcolm that, that really kind of turned you? Because uh, the, the reason I ask that is that you listen to some of the tracks on Duck Rock and some of the beats that are clearly Fairlight beats, they are very similar to what would appear a year or so later with Into Battle and and then, of course, Who's Afraid a little little while later. Was it was that a big kind of learning curve in terms of how you compiled things like drum tracks or used the Fairlight as, as a tool overall? Yeah, very much so. I think that's an interesting link you've made between Duck Rock and, and the Art of Noise material early on, is that what did, you asked the question early on, what did I learn? I learned a couple of things. One is to stay quiet. And often in sessions at the back of the room, you'd sit there and you go, mm-hmm, this is shaping up to be interesting. And timing one's suggestion is something that I learned was key. Not in a, in a sinister or cynical way at all, but I kind of, I think I quite, I, Steve Lipson once said of me many years later, when I, he saw my name on a, on a call sheet, he said, I knew we, we were in trouble as soon as I saw JJ's name on the call sheet. And I went, oh, thanks, Steve. But that's what kind of happened, I think. I kind of got called into these things when they got into a bit of a corner. And I'd start fl- throwing this stuff around. But it was always, you could tell very quickly whether something was a goer or not. And so sitting at the back and kind of picking up what was going on never thinking this is A minus seventh, I've got just the sound. It was, well, what about this? What about that? And going through things pretty quickly. Uh, and I suppose that that was one of the key things. And I the other thing, you've identified the bit about the beats. And I hadn't done any programming, didn't know anything about programming. Richard Burgess said to me, don't be a drummer, be a programmer. So that was another key point. I think from the Malcolm sessions, we just used to throw these tracks together. And because we were looping them and creating atmospheres, really, vibes. We used to call them vibes back in the day. Is, is it happening? Has it got a vibe? And if it has a vibe, you follow it. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, the link between the two, certainly. I would say that having worked with Mutt Langer on a Billy Ocean track, I think, I was doing some drum programming for him, and he, he went, what have you done? And I said, what do you mean, what have I done? He said, well, if I was a drummer, I wouldn't put a hi-hat there, which elicited the obvious response. The Trevor was very absorbing of the stuff that I would throw at him. There are lots of other people that I was working with who were going, why are you doing that? Well, that's a bit weird. Or other things, that's not like a drummer. Uh, or that's, you know, to quote Macca, that's not a horn section. And so one recognised these issues quite early on with people. I remember working with John Parr album. Sadly, not. St. Elmo's Fire, but everything else over in Miami. And they get, well, do you play? And I went, no, I just basically, let's, I create these things and you just do it. And, and they're, okay, fine. Whereas someone else would go, oh, well, we really want you to play. And I go, well, I'm not a player. I say, it's programmer. You know? <laughs> Around 82, 83, or maybe a little bit later, you, uh, uh, 
called in by Trevor again to to work with um, Yes on the 90125 album. Trevor having obviously come off the back of a slightly successful, mildly disastrous gig with Yes on the drama tour. And then he comes back to produce this album and brings you guys in, obviously because you've been doing great work previously. So you've gone from Malcolm McLaren, now, you, now you're with Prog Super Giants Yes. How different was that experience? Where to start? Um, I'm, not, I'm not being silly here, but I, that's a really good question. And I imagine the dynamic is really different. You've come from yes. Malcolm, who is completely just like let's just let's just do it because why not? To uh, an established band of exceptionally talented uh, musicians who clearly have uh, a democracy and a hierarchy, I guess, and there are some with greater say than others, and that must have been a more rigid experience, I guess. Uh, that's very well observed. Uh, it was. <laughs> Chalk and cheese between Malcolm and Yes. And apart from the obvious technical situation one found oneself in, as you've identified, Malcolm's very sort of enthusiastic. He's a one-man band, if you like. And then the Yes situation was interesting because I'd worked with them before, obviously, as Jeff Tech, as we're now known. And so they regarded me, I think, with a, with a slight amount of, not suspicion, but the other crew were kind of going, what's JJ doing here? Oh, he's got this thing. Oh, what's that? And they were kind of going, oh, so he's doing something different. I'm not looking after keyboards anymore. And um, so there was that dynamic. The guys I used to work with were kind of going, oh, okay, what are you doing here? Well, I'm programming this thing now. Oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. So then I would often get called into those sessions Probably again in the in the Lipson lineup situation of we've got ourselves into a bit of a cul-de-sac that's called JJ, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, I would say. And so more often than not, I'd get booked in and I'd be down in the studio for a couple of days, and the backing track in some form would have been recorded. There might be a guide vocal. The band may or may not have been there. Chris Squire would be late. As in starting at 11 in the morning, he'd be there at 11 in the evening, by which time everybody's tearing their hair out and want to go home. So that was very, very, very different. And overall, it was often down to me. Trevor said, we need to do something here. What about this? And I went, why don't we, for example, sample these drums and bits and pieces like that? And Gary turned on the, the juice. They started to sound amazing. And we'd start overdubbing. And I remember being in at least two or three studios during that period. There was one story where they sent Steve Howell to do some guitar overdubs with a slave and mix on the 24 track. And when it got back, it was all out of tune because the, the analog tapes weren't running at the same speed. And so there was a lot, there was a lot of uh, uh, te technical stuff. And it was time to get a cup of tea. A lot of sitting around, a lot of trying to figure out what was going on. The difference came when Trevor Rabin started playing keyboards. And he started playing the Fairlight, and he's a demon keyboard player. So a lot of the keyboard parts that he played with the sounds are, are Trevor Rabin. And he got this, he got what I was doing completely. And so I'd sample a bit of a voice, take a bit of the front off, change the ADSR, pitch it down a bit, blah, 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 Gary'd spry it up, and 
Trevor would start playing. And he, and he understood completely what it was and what it was doing. And they said, well, Gary, can you do this? Can you do that? Blah, 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 blah. Play the track and off you go. And he was there. So that little trio, Rabin, me and uh, Langan, worked very well on that because Trevor understood how it might all work together. So some of the tracks on, on that album, 90125, um, are almost kind of showcases for what the Fairlight was capable of doing. For example, you know, the, 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 the lead single, Owner of a Lonely Heart, has orchestra stabs, it has those drum fills, it has all of these little embellishments that took, you know, what is, you know, on its own, a great song, but it gave it this, this edge to not, you know, use a yes pun there. Um, but it, it kind of gave it this, this different thing. And, and then also um, um, leave it. Leave it. So, you know, all of those do, 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 do's at the beginning, for want of a better way of describing it, was that all, you know, how, how did that happen? And, and was that difficult to, to put together? Not really. Thinking about Owner of the Lonely Heart, a cassette appeared. And Trevor said, there's this drum fill I want you to sample. So I sampled that, put it into two bits. And I went, play the tape again. And I went, that sound is much more interesting. And that was the stand. And I went, let me just try it. And he'd go, okay. And he'd disappear and come back. And Gary would get the verbs going. We'd start mucking around and go, ooh. Right, we need to find a place for that because that's tremendous. And Chris Squire came in, and by this time we got the idea, we got the sound, we got the balance, we got the reverb. And Chris Squire came in and just went, "Oh, record, Gary," and just started playing. And he played that live, the middle section, and it has this kind of weird timing to it, you know. And I said, oh, "I can tighten the sound, the sound up, Chris." Went, no, 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 don't touch it. It's fine. It's fine. It has this kind of pushy, pulley thing, and it and that was, but that's his bass playing in effect. And um, you you wouldn't program it like that, and it would be pretty dull if you did. But it had this dynamic change in it, and that was because of the way he played it. It was it was because Gary recorded it, and so that it's like okay, so we need a bit of we're going to use that gag. We need to reference it a bit earlier on. What about the intro? You know, and so the normal iteration of a song, bit of an intro, put it back, do this, all the stuff that you do in a, used to do in a song, uh, took over. Having found the first bit for it, okay, it lives there. Let's allude to it somewhere else. Let's make another joke out of it, and then let's have a bit of a laugh at the end. And I've got to say that we're all just giggling like mad because we thought it was hilarious. I was, I was under the misconception, obviously, that um, yes, we're you know, the traditionalists, and you guys came in with all of those cool ideas. And yet you've, you've basically said that, you know, Chris and Trevor Rabin were really, you know, exploiting the technology and, and kind of grasping it for what it was and, and, you know, using this new stuff to, to great effect. Absolutely. And I think that there would have been combinations of yes, who with different members wouldn't have done that. I mean, Alan White played some of the drum overdubs on the, on the Fairlight. And he went, oh, could you swap the bass drum and the snare over? Because my hands don't play it like that. I went, sure. Because I had it bass drum snare. And he went, no, I want the other way around. I went, okay, fine. But he grabbed it and he went, this is what I can do with it. This is great. Bit more reverb, Gary. Ba-dum, ba-dum, boom, boom, You know, and everybody goes, whoa. Um, lots of panning, mad stereo. Let me do this. Let me do that. Poof. Great idea. And so, like all, I think that, 
if you look back over, yes, I'm not sure what other technological advances there were, but they were certainly using as many as they could and, you know, track-wise and effects and gear, I don't think they were ever sort of um, not forthcoming in, in trying things out. The the legend has it that in between the Yes sessions, Gary obtained some of the tapes of Alan's drumming and you sampled those and started to build what would become early art of noise recordings or the inspiration maybe for some of those recordings. Can you confirm or deny that and maybe elaborate on that process? Uh, absolutely. Very happy to. Gary uh, was recording the band, I think there may have been Air or Townhouse. And um, the fashion in those days was very big snare sounds. Hugh Pageant was a big guy in that. And it was as if the engineers were having a fight who could get the biggest snare. You know, it was, I think, who was it? Uh, Hall and Oates, you know, big bang crash now, big bang boom. They, they, they were just thinking it was hilarious, all this nonsense. It was very 80s, huge snares. Anyway, as I remember it, Gary had got Alan uh, playing a track on his own, and he just so just happened to be listening to the talkback mic in the live room where he was playing and realised that this was a bit of an awesome sound because it wasn't normally used for recording and it was a microphone hanging in the top of the stone room. And um, like all good engineers, he patches it in and starts recording. And I think he got Alan down to bass drum and a snare drum. So don't play cymbals, don't play hi-hat. It ended up with a kind of track, which is basically snare drum, bass drum, and because Alan was a drummer, the occasional fill, because he couldn't not do that, you know drummer doesn't sit there and go boom chat boom chat boom chat forever they have to do something you know eight bars you've got to do something so 16 bars a bigger thing you know that's that's how it works so it's in bread and it was a friday chris squire had been and gone and it was very late and we'd had a long week and i was bouncing in that these sessions and i've been there for a couple of days and i was just exhausted and gary said i've got this idea now i uh, to go home no, 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 you really got to stick around. So he persuaded me to stick around, and he played this tape. And it was basically bass drum, snare drum of Alan White playing live. And I went... Through the talkback mic. Through the talkback mic. Fire a half inch, I think. Anyway, he said, let's sample it. And I went, okay, fine. And remember, I've got 1.2 seconds. Um, groundbreaking at the time. And... Um, I wasn't paying attention because there were other things going on, and I recorded at the start of the sample, not on the downbeat, which had its own merits, actually. So we ended up calling the sample Tack Boom Boom because I started the sample on the snare beat, which meant that when you put it into the downbeat of the bar, when you're watching page R go by, going one, two, three, four, it was going three, four, one, two, three, four, which... When Anne came in, she would kind of looked at the screen and went, why is it doing that? And I went, I don't know, but it works. Because we had this groove, and Gary and I just slammed a whole load of stuff on it overnight, including us going money, which is backwards, which is enum, uh, screaming, going, yeah, and turning that backwards and 
other things that we'd found, and we just went a bit mental for a few hours. Uh, and I think we did, that was the foundation of Beatbox. Gary did a rough mix and played it to Trevor on Monday, and he went, bloody hell, what have you done? I think he said, what have you done? And he said, you need to get Anne in to put some tunes on it. So Anne comes in, and we play the track, and she's going, what the hell is going on here? And basically sitting at the piano trying to go, what do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? And ends up playing over the outro, where the beautiful, beautiful piano comes in, Bosendorfer at the uh, Sarmies. And we couldn't help nicking her, going, oh, no, I don't believe it, and dropping that into the beginning of the track with the ba-ba-bum, and off it goes. Because Gary and I, legend had it with kind of naughty schoolboys, and she's the headmistress. And so we were, again, having a bit of a laugh. And off it goes. So that's how that started. We created, uh, we created Beatbox, basically. Oh, no. Oh, no, I don't believe it. Ba -ba -bum. We got a groove, doubled it up, changed the outro fill a bit put that aside, got another four bars, got another eight bars, changed that, put that aside. And then basically, because we've been doing it a lot with Malcolm, mapped out a song. And 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 listening to it, I remember, actually, we were working on eight bars and eight bars and going, that's a great groove. Okay, park that. And then let's start something else. And we'd start afresh. And then we'd just jam all these, these sections together. And we go, wow, listen to that. I forgot about that bit. Did that two hours ago. Forgot about that. And we just play it, and then Gary recorded it all, and and it ended up on tape, and that was how it how it happened. Man comes in and plays, you know, piano. How did you go from that to recording um, into Battle, which was you know the, the first kind, of, you know, it was the first release on on the ZTT label, which I guess was being formed around that same time? Because again, legend would have it that um, Chris Blackwell from Ireland heard this and allegedly took it to New York and played it out in a club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I, I can't vouch for that bit of the story, but I do remember I was shopping in Windsor, and lived near Windsor, got into the car and turned on Paul Gambaccini, who had the American charts on. And my girlfriend at the time, Helen, said, that's your track, isn't it? I went, what do you mean? I turned it up and went, good grief, it's beatbox. And then it goes, you know, number five in the black urban dance charts in America. I go, what? <laughs> Had no idea, and they basically then realised they'd better have sign us up for a deal. Um, and then they said, uh, "We need more stuff." So Gary was going, "Well, I've got a half an hour tomorrow. Come down, and we'll we would work in 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 the um, tape editing room on a on a two track, a four track desk and a two track, just looping stuff together, put a bit of reverbs on them, and uh, if something had merit." We'd build it up and get Anne in. If it was not good, we'll just put a 30-second excerpt on and go, that's a bit of a laugh, let's do that. So it was just pretty chaotic, actually. And as you say, you, you were very busy at the time, not just with what you were doing with, with Art of Noise, but all of the other stuff that was going on at ZTT and beyond that you were being involved with, such as Frankie Goes to Hollywood and so on. How did you find, I mean, that time to kind of, on, on the one hand, you're you're a you're a pop star. You're in a, a, a hit band with hit singles and hit albums, and at the other on the other 
side of the coin, you are uh, a very much in demand programmer and engineer and producer, and you're being called to do all this stuff. Was it as busy as it sounds? And did you enjoy that? Did you get a chance to enjoy it? Uh, it was mental. Did I enjoy it? No. Um, did I have good advice about what I should do? No. Would I have followed good advice about what I should have done? No. Um, and I think that I was, I would say during that period, I was fairly out of my depth and didn't quite appreciate that producing was not so much about the music as the personalities. And I blew my gig with Zig Zig Sputnik when they came to interview, you know, to have a chat with me when uh, Debbie Collins, Pete Collins, Matt Wife was managing this later on. And one of them lit a cigarette and set fire to his hair. And um, they said to me, well, what's your role in the studio, JJ? And I said, well, the first thing to do is make sure no one sets fire to themselves. <laughs> so which Debbie kicked me hard under the table and they kind of got up and left, you know. And But I, I, I kind of realised too late in the day that I didn't have the temperament for that. And although I'd spent many hours in studios and many hours with top producers and all, I, I just... Uh, I would rather be the off-the-wall guy in, in, in the back of the room. Did you enjoy being a faceless band? Oh, much so. Yeah, 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 totally. Faceless is cool, because I'll tell you why. Because having sat through all that, worked on all that Frankie stuff, and seen them being mobbed, and seen, quite by chance, the taxi bills after a few months, and where all that money came from, uh, asked Holly Johnson, to be able to walk into the studio and know and take a blind bit of notice of who you were was fantastic. And the thing about being someone in the broadest possible sense, and I think that the social media of the world, people who embark on that haven't got this yet, which is when you are someone, you end up being not someone inevitably. And that takes many forms. And I have seen it in several bands and people that I've worked with over the years. It's very hard to handle. So being faceless, wonderful. Best thing we did. Who's Afraid was the first full album, and it was it was more of a formed piece than into battle. There, there were, you know, the highlights such as moments in love. Um, and it's often cited um, as hugely influential by so many, you know, different people for, for different reasons. Anne's compositions and um, performances were uh, inspirational. Your creative use of the sampler was um, inspirational. Gary's production uh, or engineering and Trevor's production were inspirational. How do you feel all this time on that even to this day, that album is still cited as not only just inspirational, but also like a pivotal moment in pop music? I feel humbled, actually, and have been able to access some of the stripped out audio and have been listening to some of that. And some of the things Gary got up to, for example, Moments of Love, absolutely extraordinary. So, for example, he would have probably, unbeknownst to me at the time, but I've been able to listen back to this stuff, 
say, four delays and reverbs and combinations thereof, which as the Fairlight was playing the track, because we put the Fairlight, we get the arrangement, we put the Fairlight down and then overdub in real time. But whilst we were putting it down, he was recording two tracks of stereo effects that he was muting and playing as it went along. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and the work he was doing on the snare alone in Moments of Love was extraordinary. There I can think of at least four different styles of reverb on there. And he's playing them. And he gets it wrong sometimes, and it's hilarious, because I now know. You know, I listen to it, ah! <laughs> and he just, just went for it. And so during that time, it, it's this additive process I'm talking about that we mentioned earlier. He was just adding to that uh, without really, certainly me, not being aware of what he was doing, but the fact that it turned around and going, oh, this, is, this has got the vibe, because he had created something and recorded it balanced it and put it back and suddenly this new shape and this new form appeared and over over that track we said uh, what are we going to do with this and I said well let's let's make it the most boring track we can let's do it for at least 10 minutes and we got to about nine minutes and gave up and we never managed to get it any shorter than that it just doesn't work and that was the premise let's make it really boring let's make it really long and no notion at the time of music concrete or any of that post-rationalized stuff at all uh it was let's just drag this out and i came up with the idea of, of turning everything into a nine bar loop which is because you have the the counts of four and you have the weird bits and it was a stroke of genius i think if i may <laughs> because because it was an unusual form anyway we had the the, the pulse and we needed something to trevor would call it a gag we, we need a gag to kind of reset, drop, and rebuild. And I went, let's put a, a bar of nothing in. And then we started filling the bars of nothing in with counts and noises and all that sort of stuff. But basically it meant that you could stop three, four, and rebuild. And this meant that the whole tune had many opportunities to reformulate itself because there were these breaks. And that, that was by chance, really, I guess. It was by virtue of the fact that, you know, the, 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 what happened with that is another, another cassette sample. And said to me, oh, I've got this uh, sample on a cassette that might be quite good. Gave it to me on the Friday. I said, well, I'll take it home and I'll put it in. And I sampled it, and it's the Orc melody for Moments of Love. And we got to the studio and we'd set up and said, oh, how did you get on with that sample? And I, because I've been playing with it and dialing it and shaping it and just fiddling with it, perfecting it over over the uh, weekend i'd worked out this sort of thing which i didn't appreciate was a melody at all and i went oh it goes bum 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 and she went brilliant and because he's got perfect pictures can you remember stuff she goes right gary roll the tape here we go dum, 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 dum. off she went and she played what i played perfectly again and that became the motif and i said well what should we do now she said what about why don't we do some pulses what about Teresa, let's do this. And bah, 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 that was it. And off we went. And then we went, right, let's slow it down. Let's make it long. Let's make it slow. Let's make it nine bars. Let's have a bit of a laugh. And then Paul Morley came in and he listened to the cassette. He's going to go, call it Moments in Love, because we didn't have a title. And Rosie said to me, what did Paul Morley do? I went, that alone, because we had no title. Call it Moments in Love. And the first vocal that went on it was Anne. She went home, recorded a cassette with Roger, multi-tracked herself up, dropped it in. And we ended up using Camilla Pilkington and you know lots of other people along the way. But that's that's how that started. But 
in terms of pivotal moments, the name, everything flowed from that. You know, the mad cyber sex, all that weird stuff that we threw in there it was just because of the name. And so it was, it was a, again, a very, very additive process. And I'll talk about that. And this is, this is something I've been thinking about. Uh, close to the edit, we had the loop going tap, boom, boom, tap, boom, boom, tap, boom, boom, and started playing a, quite a legato bass. Dum, 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 dum. Gary came over and started putting, said, put it in record. Give me another track and put in all these other notes. And we go, oh, wow. And I have listened to that back. And the timing's all over the place. The tuning's all over the place. By virtue of the fact it was, it was sequenced, you know, the starts are good. But all the note durations are miles off. You wouldn't, nowadays, you wouldn't let that go. But again, because it got copied and pasted, copied and pasted, that shape that I didn't bother to fiddle with, some of it long, some of it short, some of it long, some of it short, but as played, gave it that, that shape. Now you'd sit there and go, I'm going to make them all 244, 344, 489 and make it all perfect. And it sounds dire, dead. There is a, an organic quality to you know, that art of noise stuff. Um, and it does feel, ironically, given the fact that you're using what was cutting edge technology at the time, it feels very human. Well, that's because we, we, we had eight tracks on the Fairlight, as you know, and I was thinking about this, talking to someone the other day about it. I think, generally speaking, we used about five, and we'd put it on tape, and then we'd overdub it. So there's real percussion, there's real drums, there's real piano, there's real keyboards, and that, again, with the benefit of hindsight, you had this thing that's chundering along, doing its thing with Gary's reverbs, and the thing about his delays are that he used to count them manually, and so he didn't dial them in into a kind of give me a crotchet quaver, da, 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 da. he used to count them on a stopwatch. And so they're not perfect, which means you get this roll because they're not perfect. And so with all your doors and all that sort of business, you put in your perfect quantized repeats, ugh, dull, and then Anne will come and play. And because it's thundering along underneath, then as a keyboard player, you've got that ability who has that ability like and is to slide across the top and give it this feel which you, which you wouldn't and can't do if you're going to program it and again didn't know that at the time but that's what made it really really cool to listen to i think i want to just touch on more recent things if i may just this year the first i guess official Art of Noise live album was released uh, from from 19, back in 1986, yeah, yeah. live in Tokyo. Yeah. And what I wanted to know, and something I've always been fascinated with, because there were live performances of that early incarnation of Art of Noise um, at the Ambassadors, and you know, there's, there's been so, some of those recordings have been captured and put out. But then by '86, you know, Art of Noise has blown up and is is a really big well-known global band with hit singles um, coming out of your ears, essentially. And you, you're taking this project, which is essentially a studio project, and you're taking that out live, and you're using this cutting-edge technology in a live situation, which must have been quite scary. But I just want, wanted to kind of understand how you pulled that off in, you know, in such such a great way back then when it was, you know, you didn't have laptops with, you know, just press go and it all happens. 
thank goodness for the laptops and the press go button. That's all I can say. We touched on several significant issues here. And it took us a while to come across Paul Robinson, who was drumming. And he was using a Simmons kit. And Anne listened and annotated musically the drum tracks, for, for example, beatbox. I have seen them, scored them. And so I'm going into the rehearsals. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds amazing, right? And it's Paul, and he's got his Simmons, and Roger Dudley's put in all the sounds, and he's reading. And he's playing it, and it's unbelievable. And he's playing live, for real, and no click track. And it was extraordinary. I went, whoa, this is going to be good. So he did all that, and he had the pads with all different sounds on. We ended up in Japan, so we're doing No Sun, No Moon, and No Stars, and we had someone put the Japanese voice in, so when he hit it hard, it was in Japanese. When he hit it soft, it was in English, and we loved all that. Um, so he was doing that. We had two consoles out front of house. Roger Dudley was on that with another, with another guy, I can't remember his name, but they had two Akai samplers. So they're running one track with the samples loaded. Meanwhile. Roger's assistant was loading up the next one for the next tune, and then it switched sides. Um, and we had a traffic light system on the side of the stage. So when they were ready, they uh, hit the green light, and Anne and I were talking. And we go, the light's gone green, let's go. And then Paul goes, clickety-clickety-click. We go, oh, no. <laughs> Nothing happened. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so we had a great drummer, and he was playing live. And Dave Bronze, who, who plays bass with Clapton now and Tom Jones, another great bass player, reader, had a sampling bass. I can't remember which one it was, a boss, I think, or uh, something or other. And he had all his samples, and he was playing live. So we had a proper rhythm section. And then there was Simon doing percussion. There were the noisettes doing the vocals. There was Anne playing piano, and there was me pressing the odd key. And said, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, look, just do what you think you can do and don't worry about it. And don't, don't do anything you think you can't do. And I went, great. Well, that's just, and even I managed to get that wrong. And I got, I got frowned on, you know. Sorry, not paying attention. But in terms of technology, okay, so, so there are many myths. And on, on the live on the tube thing, I thought, we've got to go large here. So I got, Anne had a slave keyboard. I had two keyboards. And I had two monitors and a, and a box in the middle that was the, the sinking box. Sim, uh, really. Friendship SRC. That's the one. What a great box. That changed the world. That changed the world. Unless people who didn't know how those things worked started the track pretty much at the head of the tape and left you no room for wiggling. Go, let's put a little bit of a delay in and we can catch it up in a bar. I've been there. Anyway, um, but I only had one Fairlight. But I had multiple screens because I thought I needed to make it make it look big. So likewise on tour, Anne had the slave keyboard. I had the A-frame. I had the Friendship SRC. I had two monitors. And I, I may have had one keyboard. I can't remember. And I had the processor here. And I had a guy who looked after me. And um, quite a lot of the time when Anne was talking, there was me popping a disc and sticking the new desk in. You know, discs to go in, discs out, disc in, disc out. And uh, I famously uh, went, okay, I'm ready to go. And I went, plink, plink, uh-oh, no problem. So I'm looking around and it goes, not loaded. And I'm going, okay, this is not good. This is not good. So 
tech jumps up, he's looking, he's looking, and he pops the second right-hand drive out, okay, which you'd appreciate. Nothing comes out, right? And I'm going, what's going on? And then he's pointing, right, because there's a bit of noise going on elsewhere. And I had put the song disc between the two disc drives. Oh, right. Because <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to the story of my life. <laughs> and uh, I just sort of went, what the stupid, what do you want? What do we do? Do we have to pad down? Are we going to wait 20 minutes while it boots us back up? I'm going, what do we do? What do we do? And he got a he got an insulated screwdriver, feel it thing, popped the system disc and flicked the data disc out. And I'm going, oh, God, really? Anyway, put the system disc back in, put the disc in, and went loading it. And we go, thank God for that. Oh, my God. So I was always living in fear that it was going to stop working. And, you know, it was it was amazing that it, in the main, apart from human error, it worked fine. The assumption would be that the technology would fail, but it was it was a human error. Not paying attention. <laughs> Problem in chair, not in computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah, quite. Uh, but, you know, we were in Japan, we were in Canada, we were in America, we were in the UK, and the Fairlight, bless its cotton socks, rock solid. I mean, I, I just thought every gig I'm going to – turn it on and it's not going to work. Kind of brings me on to the, the, the my final uh, question really is that in recent years you have been playing live again uh, under various variations of the the name of the band. Um and I just wanted to kind of know how much easier it is to to do this stuff using, you know, laptops essentially rather than, you know, that old tech and is it as, is it as much fun to do? We have Donal Hodgson. Donal's a bit of a whiz. And um, he has two Macs synced together via some box. So if the primary one goes, the other one takes over without anyone noticing. I yet to hear this, but that's the theory. So he does all that side of it. And essentially, Anne had her sounds, Gary has his sounds, and I have my sounds, and and we, we join in. I remember that performance on the tube, and you and Anne are, you know, leaning over various wonderful bits of of technology, and Gary's there playing his instrument, which is the the mixer, and that's still true to this day when when you guys perform live that he is he's playing his mixer. Yeah, that's yeah, his yeah, instrument. Yeah. Well, he's got samples now as well. JJ, it's it's been a fascinating journey going through you know those seminal years and those albums and. Thank you for your wonderful insights and and stories. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. Before you go, make sure you visit the Sound on Sound podcast page at soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts where you can explore all the other great content playing across the other channels. I'm Rob Pericelli, and this has been a failed Muso production for Sound on Sound.